0: Welcome back to another episode of the Corporate Cowboys podcast. As we continue in season seven, this is episode six. As we read chapter six of the Naked Corporation, how the age of transparency will revolutionize business. The authors of this are Don Tapscott and David T. Cole, published 2002 by Free Press. My name is Alex, if I haven't mentioned that, I'm your host, and I will be reading this to you, providing some commentary along the way, but uh, for the most part, we'll try and keep it uh, coherent, continuous, so that uh, there isn't any misinterpretation or miscommunication from this book to your ears. Chapter 6, Customers in a Transparent World. We have spoken of a power shift to employees. There is another shift thanks to transparency to customers, but it cuts both ways. Companies know even more about their customers. In the past, firms relied on surveys to discern customer preferences. Today, massive exquisitely detailed databases, track customer behavior at a time. A larger at, at any time, at any time, a larger retailer knows which models of jeans sold in the Cleveland store in the last hour. If purchased with a credit card, the company also knows the purchaser's buying habits. Information tailor made for custom marketing campaigns. For years, customers have been on the wrong side of a one way mirror and uh, just a side note here. If you hear me go back and repeat a paragraph, it's because that's what this podcast is for. It's for me to be able to practice, to hone my craft as an orator, as a public speaker. So if I go back, pronounce, enunciates, you know, verbalize thoughts, that's what this podcast is for. This is professional development in real time. As you learn about the naked corporation, imagine that I'm multitasking today, continuing today, all that is changing as customers peer back and take action on what they know with seismic effects. Customers have increased access to knowledge about products and services, and they can discern true value more easily. To compete, firms need truly differentiated products, better service, and lower cost, or so sorry, it's or. Or lower cost more than ever because deficiencies in value cannot be hidden as easily. Companies can't make garbage smell like roses, and increasingly they need business integrity because it becomes part of a brand. Customers can increasingly hold corporations accountable for everything from integrity to product and service value. Open enterprises understand this power shift and embrace it. A vignette from a business where customers were completely in the dark makes the point. Some mail-order camera merchants are notorious for sleazy sales tactics and and fraudulent behavior. They typically advertise jaw-dropping bargain basement prices on the back pages of photography magazines. The goal is to get the customer to nibble the bait, that is, dial an 800 number. Once on the line, their salespeople employ time-tested techniques to hook the gullible buyer. They range from bait and switch to a higher-priced product for to stripping out accessories that normalize I fucked that sentence up. <laughs> I'll go back. They range these uh these time-tested techniques. They range from bait and switch to a higher priced product to stripping out accessories that normally come with the product and selling them for inflated prices. Sky-high shipping charges are another favorite tactic. For these crooked companies, the internet is a godsend. No longer forced to buy pricey magazine ads, these companies build attractive websites at relatively low cost. They claim to be among the country's busiest dealers. They rely on price comparison websites to hook the suckers for them, since their ultra-low prices beat any legitimate competition. (laughs) The only recourse I left, because this is still employed in 2023, it's not like sales have gotten better I mean, it's not like sales techniques or sales tactics have improved in in, in ethics, um, in, in integrity. No, it's just the same techniques and tactics. These are time-tested techniques from 2002 to 2023, which is today's year, which is the current year. <laughs> Continuing, for these crooked companies... Uh, I already read that the only the only recourse consumers really have is to use the Internet to warn one another. A popular site for intelligence gathering and sharing is www.photo.net, where thousands of customer horror stories are posted and organized by store name. The site has also hundreds of. Also, has the site also has hundreds of stories from happy customers who got good value and service from reputable stores. And uh, in this page, they include figures 6.1 and figures 6.2. What these are graphs, graphs essentially, to gather information prior to major prices. So, this is a survey that was done in countries that was asking uh, survey takers. Uh, whether or not they gather information prior to major crises and the options were strongly agree or somewhat agree and um, they go from India, Brazil, United States, Italy on down to like Spain. So a lot of the developed and developing countries I want to say um, and for the most part for the most part the ones at the top uh, damn should I read them off. <laughs> I'm over here getting lazy reading you guys graphs but only because this is dated information right so this is from 2002 uh from in 2023 I want to say that gathering information prior to a major purchase we're talking anything from uh office equipment uh home supplies even nowadays some folks are even Gathering information prior to going out and getting groceries. So yeah, if you're not out shopping or comparing prices for significant purchases, you're you're fucking up. You're dropping the ball, right? Figure 6.2 is another graph. It's labeled consumers have power to protect themselves against unfair/slash dishonest practices by a company. And they're taking this poll again, in developed and developing countries as to whether or not they agree or disagree that consumers have power to protect themselves against unfair or dishonest practices by a company. For the most part, for the most part, companies tend to agree. Towards the bottom of the graph, what is it? Uh, One, two, three, maybe four, one of them is on the fence. Uh, do, Do not believe that consumers have the power to protect themselves. And actually, I'll give you the names of these countries. That's France, South Korea, Japan, and Russia. They do not believe that consumers have the power to protect themselves against unfair and dishonest business practices. Draw from that, make whatever inference you want from that information from 2002 that you want, right? So that's dated information, but it may still be applicable in 2023. You may draw some inferences that can help you in your day-to-day life. Continuing then, in 2001, Don Wills, a Brooklyn computer programmer and avid photographer, resolved to help prevent fellow shutterbugs from being taken by crooked stores, of which there were many in his city. Wills traced the physical location of companies that ran the websites to with too good to be prices. He then rode his bicycle around Brooklyn, photographing the ramshackle, graffiti adorned, sometimes boarded up buildings these companies used. Often, there would be just a mail slot with the company's name written beside it in felt pen. Sometimes, one address would correspond to half a dozen different online camera stores. Wills posted the photos at the now defunct photoprint.com. The photos were a smash hit and instantly became part of internet folklore. Wills used the same tool, the internet, to expose the crooks that the crooks used to perpetrate their crimes. Throughout the economy, the transparency-opacity battle rages on. Food companies resist labeling the products as genetically modified. Old-style firms hide product inadequacies. Companies with high price structures work to keep customers ignorant. But the forces of opacity are in retreat, and smart firms know this. Customers have a growing sense of their own power. Most people in G20 countries feel empowered as consumers, according to a 2001 survey by Environics Environics, Environics International, two-thirds of those surveyed Believe that consumers have the power to protect themselves against unfair or dishonest practices by a company. In Russia, Japan, South Korea, and France, only a minority of consumers felt empowered. Side note: Yeah, uh, side comment. Those are yeah, those are the uh, the graphs that I just listed, where consumers now shop with shop for information no shop with information right so go out gather information before shopping for significant purchases and whether or not they can protect themselves from dishonest practices uh six figure 6.3 is also listed on this page and i'll describe it for you in brief figure 6.3 is labeled is named uh do not hesitate to complain to companies so essentially they're taking a poll uh in developed and developing countries as to whether or not consumers hesitate to complain to countries. So if they do not hesitate, then they agree. That means that they go out of their way to tell them what a shit job, what a shit product or shit service the company is giving them. And for the most part, for the most part, a lot of the consumers in countries do this in developing and developed, right? In developed and developing countries. Uh, there are some countries at the bottom that don't. The ones that sit most on the fence are going to be uh, France, Indonesia, Japan, South Korea, and Russia. So I'm assuming that uh, because the book just listed, just described uh, the past graphs, we could expect it to mention this figure 6.3 also. Um so let me just start off where it left off here. In Russia, Japan, South Korea and France, only a minority of consumers felt empowered. People aged 65 or higher and higher, sorry. People aged 65 and higher also tended to feel less able to protect themselves. 7 in 10 people, yeah, it's called elderly abuse. Financial <laughs> financial elderly abuse Elderly financial abuse? Yeah, I think that's elderly financial abuse. If I'm not mistaken, that is a tort legally. That's legally a crime. People aged 65 and higher also tended to feel less able to protect themselves. 7 in 10 people do not hesitate to complain to companies that produce or sell the products that they use. Over one-third of respondents are adamant about this aspect of their consumer behavior. Better educated people, those with higher levels of income, and internet users are more likely than others to be ready to take companies to task. Historically, customers care about price and value, product utility, quality, innovativeness, services, and safety. They also care about brands. In the past, an image or promise of a product or company. Increasingly, there is a new kid on the block, values, as customers want to buy from companies they consider to be, quote, good and give back to the community. Nearly 8 in 10 U.S. consumers say they can make a difference in driving responsible corporate behavior. 3 in 4 consumers also want to learn more about how companies seek to be more responsible. This combination of empowerment and desire to learn sets the stage for new kinds of consumer behavior. The next subheading here, transparency and value. Consumers feel empowered because they have increased access to knowledge about products and services and they can discern true value more easily. More than ever, customers can find out which cars perform best are safest and last longest, which laundry detergent gets the clothes whitest or gets clothes the whitest, I fucked that one up, which laundry detergent gets clothes the whitest, which flight is the cheapest, which cell phone company has the best plans, which book has great ideas, and which vacation package is the best. True value comes to the fore, and brand is not just an image, but rather a measure of the trust and relationships. Firms need to be honest, abide by their commitments, and show they care about customer interests by providing superior products or lower cost. As products become more complex, product life cycles shorten, and consumers' choices expand courtesy of the Internet the public's appetite for timely and dispassionate advice continues to grow. Debates long raged in online news groups, in areas such as photography, audio components, and cars, as to which companies make the best products. But few participants purport to be impartial observers. Most act as tireless, tireless brand advocates staunchly defending buying decisions they made and why professionals choose, say, Canon over Nikon or Porsche over Corvette. In the late 1990s, a number of dot-com companies sprang up to provide more neutral and structured forums for consumers to share views on products and services. The largest eopinions.com covers over 2 million products and services in over 30 different categories. Along with the standard consumer electronics sphere of camcorder and computer reviews, eopinions contributors offer advice on more exotic products such as wine, men's cologne, movies, and athlete's foot remedies. The goal is, is to give the consumer knowledge and confidence based on hearing the first-hand unbiased experiences of other consumers rather than the opinions of a single so-called expert e-opinions encourages opinion givers with money and flattery if you consistently submit high quality reviews of products and services that buyers find useful e-opinions will pay you you will be acknowledged in the community as someone whose opinion should be respected the company says it goes to great lengths to highlight the people behind the reviews so that visitors know exactly whom to trust in addition to user biography pages review lists and the ability to comment on reviews Users can flag reviewers they don't like, and the reviews will be deleted from view. Conversely, eOpinions allows all users to build a web of trust. That's in quotes, a web of trust. A specialized a, a, a personalized network of reviewers whose reviews and ratings they consistently find valuable. The company works hard to assure visitors that the opinions are unbiased, traditional trade magazines that review products such as cameras or cars often refuse to publish negative reviews. If a product is shoddy, the interview, the, the editors claim they will quote work with the manufacturer to improve the product rather than publish the negative review. They insist this ignorance is bliss policy serves the buying public better in the long run. The truth is The typical car enthusiast magazine depends on ad revenue from car manufacturers, and it cannot afford to alienate any of them. Increasingly, media-savvy readers see such policies for what they are, their editors groveling at their advertisers' feet. Some publications, such as Consumer Reports, feel the only way to avoid this potential conflict is not to accept advertising. That's nice, nicely done, consumer reports, because they can remain unbiased and unbought. That's just a side comment. Continuing, a a competitor of eOpinions is consumersearch.com, which aggregates product reviews from other websites and traditional publications. We begin by looking for the best reviews, both on and off the internet, and then we rank them according to how well we identify the category's best products. Next, we develop our full story reports, analyzing whether the experts agree or not. When they disagree, we try to determine whose work is more credible. Finally, we distill the results about which products are top rated and best in their class into our fast answers, that's end quote. E-opinions and consumer search deal with a large array of products. Some aggregation websites deal with just a handful of products, such as www.Rottentomatoes.com, which specializes in movies. Created created by movie buff Sen Dong in 1998, Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes had 2.7 million readers each month in early 2003. With more than 87,000 titles and 200,000 review links, Rotten Tomatoes offers a fun summary of the critical reaction on movies from the nation's top print and online film critics, summarized by the Tomato Meter. If more than 40% of reviewers pan a movie, it's dubbed a Rotten Tomato. Rotten Tomatoes is a much needed antidote to studio advertising. In the ads, every film is a hit and a quote, must see often backed up by half a dozen film critics no matter how bad of the movie the studios can drag up a few favorable quotes indeed as illustrated by the infamous ruse perpetuated by sony every once in a while the quotes and critics names are complete fabrications sony's advertising executives created a fictitious critic called david manning to pump up their films He was billed as a reviewer for the non-existent Ridgefield Press in Connecticut. Bogus quotes and advertisements were attributed to Manning for a number of films, including Hollow Man, Vertical Limit, and Rob Schneider's The Animal. With Rotten Tomatoes, viewers are given a representative cross-section of dozens of reviews. The next little subheading here, Transparency and Price. Now, if I'm not commenting as much, it's because this stuff is mostly dry. I'm not going to try to I'm not going to moisten it for you for as dry as it is. I'm going to power through. If you understand what what is going on, right? As far as website aggregation equaling uh magnified transparency, right? If, if the fact that transparency is being facilitated and enabled by the internet right because this is 2002 this is this is this was published in 2002 so transparency apparently was you know just taking off and um aggregate aggregating websites aggregation websites were you know something new but today's day and age aggregation websites it's like google google was like the first aggregation site that pulls sites from across the web and shows them to you on one web page, right? So that's what an aggregation website is. And what they're talking about is that now consumers have the power to uh, research reviews for specific products, for specific items and services that they're going out to shop for using aggregation websites. So uh, this next subheading, transparency and price. You've done your research at manufacturers' websites, consulted services such as eopinions.com, and chosen the CD player or camcorder that you want. God damn, this is from 2002. A CD player? A camcorder? All that shit is on your iPhone now. All that shit is on your Android now. <laughs> damn, 2002 was a, not a consumer's paradise, but a um, what's the term called? an obsolete technologists paradise, man. Cause they would put anything on the fucking market instead of integrating it all. They, they were finding ways to to separate shit and create agreements off to the side to be able to, to capitalize on, on many monopolies. Damn. It was fucking the wild West. It still is the wild West, right? Because this, uh, the corporate world order exists to today, right? in, in, in the current age. So corporate cowboys never left. If anything, they're deeper in corporate. They're deeper inside and outside of corporate and they run deep. All right. Continuing the next question then who to buy it from a host of online companies strive to empower consumers by scouring the internet for the best prices on goods and services. Companies like BizRate.com, mysimon.com, dealtime.com, and PriceGrabber.com offer advice on where to get the best value, which in many cases is not the same thing as the cheapest deal. As we saw with camera stores, any scoundrel can build a website and claim to offer great products with <laughs> can offer great products at unbelievably low prices. Quote The lowest price is often the one with the less-than-ethical business practices, end quote, says Chuck Davis, chief executive for BizRate. To make its service more accurate and useful, BizRate now offers four additional metrics to separate good from not-so-good online merchants. On-time delivery, did our products meet your expectations, customer support, and the bottom line question, would you shop here again? Most price comparison sites offer similar ratings. Online comparison shopping sites such as BizRate compile comprehensive ratings from shoppers on a scale that was unimaginable prior to the internet. In January 2003, BizRate released a list of the sites that offered the best customer service during the 2002 holiday season. The list was based on critiques offered by more than 1.5 million online shoppers from November 25 to December 25, 2002. BizRate is unique not only for surveying customers at the time of purchase, but by following up with email a short time after customers are scheduled to receive the product to see if they are still satisfied and just a side comment. Yeah. Most services do that today. They'll do that with emails. They'll do that with, uh, phone calls. They'll do that with texts, even, uh, asking you to rate their service, their product or service from like one to five or whether or not you'd shop with them again in the future. And that supposedly in theory goes towards, uh, internal auditing, right? To find whether or not they should consider any changes to their logistics or su- support systems for their customers or clientele. Price comparison, continuing price comparison sites save legwork and give consumers confidence. They are making a smart decision. Seeing how popular price comparison sites have become, some innovative online vendors now offer their competitor's price on their own site rather than relying on third-party websites to validate their claims of good value. Progressive, an auto insurance company, gives online quotes to customers who provide details about their age, marital status, car type, and so on. Progressive also calculates what its competitors charge, the basis of insurance company rating data that companies file with state governments. Progressive says it strives to make the comparison as accurate as possible. Since it is confident its product will consistently offer top value. Sometimes it loses to lower price competitors, but some customers pay its higher rates because they conclude that it is a different kind of company worthy of their trust and business. Open enterprises create trusting relationships in part because they exhibit transparency. Side comment. Yeah. I mean, if they're being as transparent as possible and they lay out for you what their service provides, what their rates will be. Alongside with their competitors' rates, I feel like that inspires confidence and that inspires trust in the consumer with with the idea that because Progressive, let's take Progressive as an example, Progressive was so open and so transparent with their prices, with the, the value that they provide, going with Progressive is going to be a safe bet that what they buy is what they will get. You see? That what they get, that that they will get essentially what they pay for. If they go with someone else who's cheap, with the cheaper rate, right? They may not get the best service. They may not get service that's as trustworthy, service that's as transparent as progressives. It's a good marketing tactic. It's a really, really good tactic. It's a good technique to close. <laughs> Continuing. Online purchasers are not the only ones who use online price comparison sites. The main users are people who plan to buy in a physical store. They go online to find out what prices are reasonable at their local merchant or to confirm whether an advertised super sale in their local newspaper is really a bargain. Price comparison sites can give the buyer a real sense of confidence and soon this boon will be available. Over wireless devices as you shop in any store. In 2002, pricegrabber.com teamed up with AT&T Wireless to make its ratings available anytime, anywhere. Tens of millions of people wouldn't think about buying a car until they know what their local dealers paid for it. And soon, that information will be readily available on handheld devices. See how you see how general how how vague they describe handheld devices is just handheld wireless devices. It's phones, fam. It's phones. It used to be what like PDAs and other bullshit, but it's literally just phones now. It's phones, it's watches, and uh, I, I know that glasses, smart glasses are now in the works, but as of now, they're cell phones. Next subheading here next subheading is price discovery, price discovery, the rise of. Of the agora, agora, a g o r a, agora. Transparency not only enables buyers to know more about sellers and their goods and services, to find the best deal, or even to aggregate to their purchasing power. It is also starting to change the way prices are determined. In digital capital, we discussed that's the book, that's their book, digital capital. We didn't read that, but if you would, if you are interested. I suggest you go pick it up. Digital Capital. In Digital Capital, we discussed how new communications media, especially the internet, facilitate price discovery, whereby buyers and sellers cooperate and compete to arrive at a mutually acceptable deal. Our discussion was not restricted to online transactions, but rather embraced business models that may transcend the physical and digital worlds. We call these agoras, in quotes, agoras, after the Greek word for marketplace. In ancient Greece, an agora was originally a gathering place for assemblies. It later evolved to become the marketplace of a city's center. Today, the term applies to markets where buyers and sellers meet to freely negotiate and, by doing so, quote, discover a price for goods. Agoras are enabled by and in turn facilitate transparency. They work best when buyers and sellers know more about each other and the goods and services to be transacted. As such, they have the power to increase liquidity, the ease of converting assets into cash. Agoras achieve liquidity by matching buyers and sellers, and enabling them to discover a mutually acceptable price. Agoras historically served a special distribution function for goods of uncertain or volatile value. These were typically unique, distressed, or perishable items and commodities for which supply and demand fluctuated continually. Unsuited, To traditional fixed-price models, there is no price list, the value of these goods had to be resolved or discovered through direct negotiation between producers and consumers. With the exception of commodity exchanges and stock markets, most traditional agoras have been limited by time and space, by the transaction costs incurred in negotiating the price, that is, the time and effort entailed in doing so. In an industrial age economy of scarcity, buyers and sellers often preferred the predictability of fixed prices. Pre-internet, large-scale auctions or exchanges were impractical. Success required a critical mass of buyers and sellers who wished to exa- to exchange. Sorry, I fucked that one up. Pre-pre-internet. Pre-internet, large-scale auctions or exchanges were impractical. Success required a critical mass of buyers and sellers who wished to exchange the same good during the same time and use the same mechanism to communicate and conduct price discovery. The only working examples were commodity and stock exchanges or limited auction events. Because of transparency, negotiated transactions between buyers and sellers are challenging pricing habits and value allocation models in one industry after another. Usually, one company or a consortium acts as a market maker and sets broad rules. It governs the nature of the playing field, its boundaries, player eligibility, and the processes of competition. After that, participants make their own decisions without interference. Because of their multifaceted and dynamic nature, agoras present nearly unlimited opportunities for innovation in price discovery. Some agora operators like OnSale.com or UBid.com simply bring auctions to traditional retail goods. FX All describes itself as a multi-bank portal because it really provides the beginnings of an open market for foreign exchange and now accounts for $9 billion in trading daily. Author and consultant Mohan Sawani Ooh, I like that name. Sawani? Sawani? Maybe it's Sawani. Yeah. Author and consultant Mohan Sawani that's S-A-H-W-N-E-Y, Sony, argues that openness can strengthen relationships rather than commoditize them. But only if you, as a seller, focus on value rather than just the lowest price. He says, transparency is only the enemy of profit if customers are ignorant of the value you provide. He encourages you to consider whether you are better off or worse off with an informed customer he encourages you to consider whether you are better or worse off with a informed customer essentially that's that's telling you um, what's the opposite of caveat emptor caveat venditor right where now the vendor now the seller has the caveat that the buyer is <laughs> Is in their bag is, is on their shit they're not about to fumble the bag because the seller thinks that they can hike prices up where they can skimp on service now the 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 consumers the buyers have power to go out research what the pricing is like compare pricing service compare rates compare quality before making the purchase continuing you need to understand what customers really value you may conclude that price is only one of several important variables. One strategy is to develop flexible market offerings that allow customers to choose the services they value and to pay for only those they use. Then, quote, communicate your value proposition to ensure that non-priced variables are fully quantified. Unfortunately, not all agoras are based on the notion of increased customer knowledge. Priceline.com deliberately keeps the customer in the dark as to price and product. Users submit bids on what they are willing to pay for a three star hotel in downtown Chicago, for example. Priceline's computers then look for a match. If the buyer's bid is high enough, Priceline confirms the booking. If the customer will never know, oh, oops, oops, I fucked that one up. But the customer will never know if he could have. Bid lower or what other hotels were vying for his business. Alternatively, if the bid is too low, the customer is not allowed to rebid. This prevents customers from trying to discern the price floor or the floor price. Not all consumers tolerate Priceline's strategy of opacity. At www.biddingfortravel.com, Priceline customers come together to swap intelligence. When we checked it out in March 2003, posters reported booking four-star hotels in Manhattan for $75. What? That's fucking wild. The world champion of Agora's is, of course, eBay. Profitable almost from the day it was conceived, eBay is the heart of a nearly perfect business web. Its consumers, whether sellers or buyers, take on most of the work, the cost, and risk. They carry the inventory, do their own marketing, and arrange for shipping. It costs eBay next to nothing to add customers, and the company's fees are 85% prepaid by credit card. The source of eBay's success is a transparency tool, its reputation management system. Many companies would do well to learn from it. It's a simple idea. Every time you buy something, eBay invites you to rate the seller. Was its sales pitch truthful? Did it meet its commitments? Did it go the extra step to make you happy? You also get to score its performance on a scale of negative one to zero to plus one. In a remarkable example of an online community at work, about half the people who buy or sell on eBay reportedly take a moment to provide such feedback. Some eBay members now have thousands, even tens of thousands of individual feedback items available for anyone to read. Imagine if General Motors or Walmart had something like this. Would it hurt or would it help? Harvard political scientist Richard Zeckhauser and colleagues performed an experiment in which they auctioned several lots of vintage Valentine postcards on eBay. One seller had an excellent, well-established feedback record. Another, using a new made-up identity, had a little to no track record. After 200 postcard sales, the established identity had brought in 7.6% more sales, more sales dollars on average. Earned reputation is hard to isolate in the real world, whereas well-known brands and personal contact introduce a variety of biases. So this 7.6% advantage is a striking little data point. Real companies, quote unquote, real companies can learn from eBay and some are doing so. A growing number of big firms have mini sites like eBay to auction overstock and surplus merchandise. Dell and IBM, for example, each auction off lease computers oops yeah, each auction off lease computers on a branded eBay store. They submit to the disciplines of the rating system with the attendance plaudits and pain. This is great for consumers. Not only can they get a deal, but they can also find out how other buyers rated the corporate seller. But can they also get this at the seller's own online store? Question mark. Surprisingly, continuing surprisingly, some companies have learned their customer feedback lessons well and even improved on them. For example, Dell and Apple host a wide variety of customer conversations on their own websites and free oh, with free speech as far as the eye can see. At Dell, customers debate whether it's okay to say nasty things about the company on its own site. The discussion quickly turns into a heated battle on the relative merits of Dell and Toshiba laptops, replete with full-color logos and the competition posted by Toshiba boosters. Meanwhile, over at Apple, someone complains about the earphones on her new iPod, while another seeks help to eliminate scratching sounds when the machine plays MP3s. Does such freewheeling discussion help companies? We've said there are lots of sites like eopinions.com where customers can go to review products. Isn't it better to host such activity on your own website observe the action and be seen to take care and be seen to care about the firm's customers, you might learn something too. For example, Dell claims that revamped laptop models announced in March, 2003 respond to customer demands from its online forum. I mean, this is all, this is a side comment. This is all like, well and fine, right? Well and good. Because uh, it shows that companies are are reading, listening, they are paying attention to consumer feedback, and they're making appropriate changes in order to change, in order to adjust the value proposition that they have for their consumers. In the pursuit of more profits, right? So you would think that better products, better services lead to more profit. It has its drawbacks. It has, you know, it can have its drawbacks too, but... I don't know if the book will address them. Of course, continuing, of course, inviting customers to self-organize on your own website is not without risks. What if they gang up on you? The answer is, as long as you meet their expectations, show goodwill, and avoid Firestone tire type disasters, this <laughs> Firestone had flammable tires. For those who don't know, go research, go go look it up on any search engine, Firestone flammable tires. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, they fucked up. I don't know if they caused the death or they caused like severe bodily injury, but uh, yeah, they they were taken to court for it. So as long as you don't have, uh, as long as you avoid Firestone type disasters, Firestone tire type disasters, this should just be a good mechanism for keeping you on your toes and staying in touch. Indeed, the Hauser study found that negative ratings had no impact on willingness to buy. In fact, transparent customer feedback forms can actually help push up prices. As they used to say in Hollywood, I don't care what you say about me, just spell my name right. <laughs> that sounds savage as fuck, but I doubt that came out of Hollywood. The next subheading, transparency and customer values. TRANSPARENCY AND CUSTOMER VALUES Blood diamonds, also known as conflict diamonds, are a textbook example of an industry's turning a blind eye to atrocities in its own backyard, only to be exposed by transparency. Repeatedly, armed factions in different African countries have seized diamond mines in order to convert the gems into cash for weapons and ammunition. Though conflict diamonds account for only 4% of the global diamond supply, they are responsible for enormous pain and suffering, with more than 650,000 deaths in the Angolan diamond funded civil war alone. What a difference a little transparency can make! As recently as 1996, the De Beers annual report blithely described how its record purchases of Angolan diamonds ensured global price stability. Most readers were not aware that the firm's money funded weapons and ammunition purchases, but as media reports and non-governmental organizations began to educate consumers about the issue, De Beers had a dramatic change of heart. (laughs) In June 2000, in a June 2000 public letter to colleagues in the world diamond industry, De Beers chairman, Nicky Oppenheimer, wrote, quote, you will be aware that the role of diamonds as a source of funding for rebel armies and warlords in several African states has become a major political and media issue. We are sure that you share our deep concern that the role, appeal and value of diamonds as a symbol of beauty and love should not be sullied by this connection with the atrocities of war. Nevertheless, because of its previous behavior, De Beers was subsequently barred from handling Angolan diamonds by the Angolan government. In a bid to re-enter the market, De Beers insists it has mended its ways. Says De Beers managing director Gary Ralph, quote, that was part of the old De Beers, it is not part of the new De Beers. We are not in the business of mopping up diamonds on the outside market. <laughs> I don't know. When motherfuckers use verbiage like mopping up diamonds, you know, they're mopping up fucking villages, dog. They're still in the business. I don't give a fuck what they say. Uh, the child, Because if, if they're not still in the business, then they're sitting on blood diamonds, right? And they got to get rid of them somehow. So they're still in the fucking business. You like once you're in, once you get blood on your hands, that shit is not coming off. Doesn't matter how many times you wash them, you got blood on your hands. Having done it, you cannot undo it. It's not, <laughs> it's not like saying sorry. Saying sorry doesn't bring back 650,000 lives. It doesn't bring back villages getting wiped, getting mopped up over diamonds. It doesn't bring that shit back. That's that's business. Business is war. You have to admit what you've done and either own it or or bow the fuck out. Bow out. The challenge, I mean, own it, right? Right? Own it and change. So like, you know, open up your fucking books, become transparent with it, but these motherfuckers aren't becoming transparent with it. They're just saying, "We pr- like we promise, we swear, like you could take it from me. I'm not mopping up diamonds anymore." When they've been mopping up diamonds, when they have in the past, they have a record of it. <clears throat> Continuing, the challenge to advocacy group, and that's and not just diamonds. I got nothing against the beers, right? But it, it And it's not just diamonds. That's all I'm saying. The challenge to advocacy groups is to stop the trade in conflict diamonds, but not jeopardize the employment of thousands of Africans in the legitimate diamond trade. You see, there you go. There is a legitimate diamond trade and they don't want to jeopardize it for the jobs that they have created through these diamonds through, through the actual legit mines and the businesses, the communities surrounding the mines. I get it. It's understandable. Rather than call for a boycott, Non-governmental organizations demand a transparent diamond supply chain that can give consumers confidence that their purchases are not subsidizing war. That's a good step. That's a good first step, right? They also want consumers to make clear to the diamond-producing companies that blood diamonds is an issue that end-buyers take seriously. The industry solution, the so-called Kimberley process, was endorsed by governments of almost 40 countries. In it, every producing nation monitors and certifies that diamonds are from approved mines. Countries that buy diamonds have a similar system to ensure that only certified products are imported. Conflict diamonds are banned. I mean, I'm not going to dig into I'm, I'm not going to dig into where the Kimberley process starts and stops. You make your own inferences as to whether or not conflict diamonds can receive stamps of approval um, and and how, how and why. So you come to your own inferences. I'm not here to convince you of anything. (laughs) All right. Continuing, continuing. The Kimberly process depends on transparency. Damn, it depends on transparency. Non-governmental organizations want independent inspectors to audit and verify systems put in place rather than simply relying on the companies involved. They fear the temptation for individuals or corporations to act as a backdoor conduit for the conflict diamonds will be too strong to resist. The industry is currently scrambling to prove the system effective. You see, the system is already in place, right? And now it's scrambling to prove It's efficacy, to prove that it is effective, to prove that it's keeping conflict diamonds out. (laughs) Scrambling, it's fucking scrambling. You make your own inferences. Consumers across, I'm continuing. Consumers across the world are increasingly punishing and rewarding companies because of their perceived corporate social performance. According to Environics International, the proportion of Americans that reported having punished a company for being socially irresponsible Equaled 58% in 2002, an increase of 15 points from 2001. Furthermore, strong majorities in most countries believe that their actions as consumers can influence corporate behavior. 78% of Americans believe that as consumers can make a difference, that That they, sorry, 78% of Americans believe that they, as consumers, can make a difference in how responsibly a company behaves. Among U.S. consumers with access to the Internet, 17% say they have recently searched for information on corporate social behavior online. Young adults 18 to 24 with Internet access are more likely to have looked for such information online with over one in four reporting doing so. A recent study by the London-based New Economics Foundation, NEF, in partnership with the Cooperative Bank, found that the value of ethical consumer purchases for fuel, housing, personal goods, transports, and subscriptions is small but growing rapidly by 18.2% between 1999 and 2000. That is from £4.8 billion to £5.7 billion. Ethical purchasing is now growing at six times the rate of the overall market, reaching a market share of 1.6%. Total ethical purchasing with banking and investments amounts to $13.4 billion in 2000 A growth of 19% from the previous year, 1999. The next subheading, values in lumber, question mark. In this new environment, seemingly straightforward businesses become sudden lightning rods for political activism. Home Depot became a retail giant by selling hammers, nails, and lumber at deep discount prices. Then, wham! The Rainforest Action Network appeared. The network wants to reduce the chopping of rainforest trees in the North American market. Rather than appeal to governments, the network organizes customer product boycotts. As the largest retail of old-growth lumber, it sells more than $5 billion of lumber, plywood, doors, and windows each year. Home Depot was a prime target. The Rainforest Action Network has 30,000 members and 150 grassroots groups in more than 60 countries. It uses the internet for public education and to forge alliances with indigenous groups, human rights and environmental organizations, small businesses, and local politicians. When locked in battle with Home Depot, the Action Network's websites provide provided statistics about rainforest depletion, documentation about Home Depot's company's activities, lists of actions and protests across North America, and information about other organizations working on the campaign. Quote, Our highly effective activist network has used a variety of tactics, such as hanging banners, blockades of buildings and meetings, street theater, protests, and stopping logging trucks and ships. These actions not only call attention to the plight of the world's forests, but also help to stop the machine of destruction in its tracks, end quote. The network even posted talking points to activists for media interviews. After two years of being hammered with bad PR and increasing resistance, to new store locations, Home Depot surrendered. The company announced in 1999, it would phase out old growth lumber from its product lines by the end of 2002. On January 2, 2003, the Rainforest Action Network issued a press release that Home Depot, assessing Home Depot's efforts, sorry. On January 2, 2003, the Rainforest Action Network issued a press release assessing Home Depot's efforts. The progress, this is a quote, the progress Home Depot has made removing products from endangered forests from its shelves is impressive. The company has succeeded in establishing meaningful chain of custody to track the origin of nearly all its wood products. Home Depot's sale of wood products that are environmentally certified by the Forest Stewardship Council has dramatically increased. Home Depot, however, has yet to take the final and most important step in its commitment to use its power as the market's leader to drive change within the forest products industry. Home Depot continues to do business with the worst actors in the logging industry. End quote. For its part... For its part, Home Depot says its customers appreciated the progress it has made to responsible forestry. Quote, "When someone purchases a piece of wood from the Home Depot, we would like them to think of that as them placing an order for another tree to be planted somewhere in the world," said Ron Jarvis, Home Depot's vice president of merchandising. That's that's a nice thought. That's that's a nice sentiment. The company insists It has fulfilled the promises it made in 1999. Quote, in our mind and the minds of most people we talk to, we've gone a lot further than most people thought we would, Jarvis said. A spokesperson, a spokesperson for the Action Network said it was possible the group would resume its protests. (laughs) It's never enough. It's never good enough, right? But I get it. It is, it is understandable that they're going after uh, the logging of old-growth forests. I mean, that is important. That's vital. What about the pollution, right? What about pollution of, uh, of other larger companies, other larger corporations, other nation-states? What about their pollution? <coughs> another another quote, continuing. All of these companies are on a sort of... Are on a sort of... What? what? Are on a sort of a new... are What? This is a fucked up quote. Hold up. All of these companies are on a sort of a new road, so to speak. It's just on, on a sort of new road. But Right? All of these companies are on a sort of a new road, so to speak, to providing wood products that give consumers the confidence that the wood they buy is coming from well-managed forests said Ron Dower, president of the U.S. branch of the Forest Stewardship Council. Well, Ron Dower, that quote was fucked up. (laughs) Certification by the Forest Stewardship Council involves guidelines on environmental standards, biological diversity, and cutting in a manner designed to ensure that a forest continues to thrive. They are ahead of the pack in terms of moving along that road, Dower said, of the Home Depot. Is there further to go? I suppose there is always further to go. End quote. Nice. Very nice. Let's turn the page here. Next little subheading product co-creation. So co-creating a product with somebody else where I guess it's you're collaborating on creating nice. Product co-creation. In the transparent world, customers can find out, inform others, and even self-organize. Whether it's teenagers sharing mp3 music, buyers' clubs aggregating purchasing power, geeks developing Linux software. Uh, more more on Linux. Go listen to uh, episode, what is that, four? I think it's episode four. Yeah, go listen to episode four. Or was it five? <laughs> Let me give you a quick heads up here. Was it five or was it four? It was five. Season seven, episode five. Go listen to it if you're interested. It's very interesting. Uh, Geeks developing Linux software or lonely singles creating a club to meet each other instead of going to the classified ads. Customers can organize themselves more easily than ever before. This poses disaster or boon depending on whether firms see transparency as a threat or opportunity. Self-organizing systems have enormous implications for businesses. Smart managers are asking, quote, is there a chance our customers could work together via the internet to build a product that competes with us? How do we prevent this and harness the energies and ideas of our customers to co-create our product or service? This phenomenon has racked the music industry as much as any other. Rather than purchase CDs from stores, consumers construct their own music playlists of digital music downloaded from the net. Cooperation among consumers is shared by by sharing, hold on. Cooperation among consumers by sharing their digital music files with others via the internet creates an alternative to the industry. The recording industry is a textbook example of how leaders of the old paradigm are often the last to embrace the new. Yes, because, side commentary, pride comes before the fall. You're fucking huge one moment, and the next moment, the frame of reference changes completely. Where you're big in one area means that you are lacking in the other. And you never want to get caught lacking. You always want to have and keep that motherfucking thing on you. All right. Um, The recording industry, uh, open enterprises, rather than viewing customer self-organization as a threat, should treat it as an opportunity to involve customers deeply in their operations. In doing so, firms harness the genius of customers for value creation as well as create superior customer experiences and strong, enduring customer relationships. To date, examples of this are few and far between. As mentioned earlier, the toy company LEGO chose the transparency route, bringing its customers into its design process. Best known for making little interlocking plastic bricks, LEGO now makes high-tech toys for children and adults alike. One of its new product lines, Mindstorms, combines hundreds of LEGO bricks with gears, lights, motors, and touch sensors, and a microprocessor called the RCX that allows users to build their own robots. Lego and the MIT Media Lab wrote the original software for the RCX. But soon after the software released, a Stanford student reversed engineered it and posted it on the internet. Since the RCX software was proprietary, Lego faced a decision. It could behave like the recording industry and take legal action against the Stanford student for attacking its intellectual property, or it could sit back, smile, and see what happened. After initially leaning in the wrong direction, Lego chose to do the latter. The company has had reason to congratulate itself ever since. After the Stanford student posted the RCX code online, an Illinois man posted software designs and a german student did the same then others began to download the software and tinker with it soon amateur programmers were using mindstorms to make devices ranging from photocopiers and slot machines to a dog named ger that's a remarkable creature ger can distinguish colors and respond to voice commands imagine that today lego uses mindstorms.lego.com to encourage tinkering with the RCX software. So essentially, essentially they've made it open source or they've, they've allowed it to remain open source. The website offers a free downloadable software development kit. Lego's customers in turn use the site to post descriptions of their Mindstorms creations and the software code programming instructions and Lego parts that the, that the devices require. Lego might as well have made its customers part of its design department. That's nice, right? When you don't have to pay a design team, when you when you can actually curb the cost of a design department and just outsource it to the people who are going to be using it, to the people who want it. That's neat. I like that. Continuing, the company benefits hugely from the work of this volunteer business web. Each time a customer develops and posts a new application for Mindstorms, the toy becomes more valuable. A direct upshot from this customer involvement is a greatly expanded consumer market for Lego. Originally a child's toy, Lego Mindstorms now has broad appeal, particularly for university students and professional and business professionals. Says Soren Lund, a director at Lego in Denmark, quote, it has kept the product vibrant and alive even today, end quote, that's my accent, (laughs) four years after it was released, quote, I still get amazed even when I, I still get amazed when I see what's going on out there. Yeah, you should, because creation and innovation, creativity is unceasing. Uh, continuing continuing soon more sophisticated collaboration and knowledge management tools will be available and far more complicated projects will be possible it's easy to imagine any digitized content being developed this way for example a textbook the model could be transferred to many other sectors volunteer engineers could cooperate on the net to provide design input into a new generation automobile. A car company such as GM could harness the creativity of its own customers to co-design a car. It could build an online collaboration arena that presents 3D visual prototypes. Participants could include style-conscious customers, fleet buyers, knowledgeable service technicians, supply chain partners, dealers, car buffs, and industrial engineers. Industrial designers, I'm sorry I fucked that one up, industrial designers. These participants would be motivated to provide their advice freely because they love cars, enjoy interacting with other members of the online community, and gain pleasure from influencing the design of a future car. When GM adopted an idea, it could publicize the news to the community, enhancing the contributor's reputation the manufacturer could return the favor by providing buyer rebates based on the quality and design of contributions. That is a swell idea, and the fact that it came up in 2002 and hasn't been implemented in 2023 lets me know, or at least I haven't heard about it, lets me know that some companies are out there fucking up the bag. For the, I don't know, for the sake of greed, for the sake of ignorance, because they're fucking retarded. When it comes to capitalism, and they say capitalism is bad. No, it's just players. Some players don't know how to play until they get played and have to learn the rules the hard way. (laughs) The next little subheading here then, corporate integrity and the brand. Investor Warren Buffett says, if you lose dollars for the firm by bad decisions, I will be very understanding. If you lose reputation for the firm, I will be ruthless. That's a really good quote, actually. You could lose dollars by making bad decisions. That's almost logical, right? But if you fuck around, because you could lose dollars and not lose reputation, right? But if, if you lose reputation, it doesn't matter how many dollars you make. It's it's, fuck you. You're dead. (laughs) I mean, dead professionally, right? That's career suicide, professional suicide. For a growing class of products and companies, integrity, honesty, reliability, consideration, and transparency are the foundation of brand architecture. Most brands have included some, but not all of these values in the past coke presents itself as reliable delivering the same taste worldwide it communicates consideration quality control flavor convenience safety philanthropic benevolence even the promise of lifestyle improvements quote things go better with coke but values like honesty and transparency were never really necessary for coke's branding in fact the brand has always boasted of opacity, at least in the formulation of its secret ingredients. In that case, appropriate. Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, we're, we're dealing with opacity when it comes to like trade secrets. All right, that's understandable. Internationally, in recent years, Coke has faced the murder, the murders, Of union organizers and the clear use of terror against workers in its bottling plants in Colombia. Coke insists that it supports human rights and that bottlers are independent of the Coca Cola company. Reports of these crimes led the International Labor Rights Fund and the United Steelworkers of America to launch a historic lawsuit in Miami on behalf of the Colombian Union against Coca Cola and its Colombian bottler. Opponents of Coke's strategy of indifference with respect to its suppliers say that quote, global corporations such as the Coca-Cola Company have a responsibility to ensure that the rights and safety of all workers who produce package slash bottle or distribute their products are protected just as they have a responsibility to ensure that the products they sell are safe. Coca-Cola has a responsibility to ensure that the conditions under which their products are produced are safe. End quote. Critics allege that the real thing is Coke's unfair labor practices. That's in quotes. In quotes, the real thing because Coke, I guess, had a had like a trademarked uh, what is it? A trademarked what's the term called? A motto? Is it a motto? It's the trademark, really, quote, the real thing, the real Coke. It's not the real Coke. The real Coke has cocaine. (laughs) Continuing, continuing. Adding honesty and transparency to the formula creates a higher hurdle and more complex brand architecture. Today, Coke must endeavor to behave and present itself as a leader in corporate citizenship and a company with great integrity. It has launched programs on the environment, that's water and natural resources, climate change, environmental education, and waste management. It has invested considerably in fighting AIDS through employee programs and bottling partners, Over the past few years, it has invested tens of millions of dollars in educational programs in the many communities in which it operates. It has, however, had little success convincing critics that it has taken steps, the adequate steps, to improve labor practices in its bottling plants or even to accept responsibility for this challenge. Coke lives in a house of glass and consumers, especially in certain important markets, that's the youth and developing countries, can be expected to shift loyalties as Coke's brand architecture is undermined. Some companies bake accountability into their brands to gain consumer support, even from the most surprising places. In 2001, animal rights group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, that's PETA, organized nearly a thousand demonstrations at Burger King restaurants throughout North America, criticizing the fast food giant for its suppliers' cruel treatment of animals. A year later, PETA's website, Glitzly, Glitzily, Glitzily, what is that? A year later, PETA's website, Glitz, maybe it's the Glitz and Glamour, I don't know, Glitzily urged, supporters to put down their protest signs and chow down at burger king what why it says in june 2001 following PETA's six-month campaign the fast food giant had agreed to hold suppliers accountable for upgraded standards of animal welfare and burger king also became the first fast food restaurant to add a veggie burger that's already available it was already available in Europe and Canada to, oh wait, not already available because this, I mean, yeah, this book was written in 2002. So it's, it's saying here in quotes, after June, 2001, by then the burger was already available in Europe and Canada to all of its U.S. sites. So they included a veggie burger in all of its U.S. menus. Burger King is Becoming an open enterprise. A company that serves meat to millions. But is also accountable to animal lovers. Royal Dutch Shell faced what we call a trust crisis. That damaged its brand when it tried to sink an obsolete North Shore drilling rig. Called the Brent Spar in deep ocean waters. They tried to sink? Just straight up sink it? was it? Fucking sunk cost? Just a lost asset? They are just trying to trying to write off some fucking expenses. <laughs> Public pressure forced Shell to reverse its decision and pay to have the rig dismantled on shore. I mean yeah I mean what what logic what's the logic in that? And and just sinking and just sinking the, the facilities instead of paying to have them dismantled and, and and recycled. You could easily recycle it, have another rig constructed from it, write all of that off as an expense fucking retards shell brand has always stood for reliability that's good quality consistent fuel products and consideration that's convenient locations competitive prices today shell places integrity at the center of its brand shell is now asking consumers to trust it not only to provide good gas. But also to steward the environment and be socially responsible. It positions itself as an honest, transparent corporate citizens. Some critics allege that this is a pure, that this is pure window dressing and that Shell's commitment to advertising how well it behaves is greater than its commitment to behaving well. I I, I might agree. I, I might agree with that because when you have to advertise, when you have to advertise and promote, all the good that you do, instead of garnering that reputation organically, right? When you have to promote and put it in people's faces, like like social media today, when folks go out on the street and start giving away, uh, start handing money or bags of food or clothes, you know, necessities and staples to uh to the homeless, to the indigent, to no, sorry, to the indigents, to the indigents, to the unhoused, quote unquote. And they're videoing it all up in the person's face and pretty much asking them for a statement, asking them like, hey, tell the camera how fucking shitty your life is and why we're making it better. When they do that, when they're trying to advertise and promote their good deeds, to me, at least, it comes off as fake. So some critics allege that this is pure window dressing and that Shell's commitments to advertising how well it behaves is greater than its commitment to behaving well. But there is no comparison between the genuine shift in thinking at be- and behavior at Shell and the thinking at other companies, such as Exxon, that have just begun to make the turn. Clarica Life Insurance boasts it is, quote, one of the fastest growing life insurance companies in the United States, quote, or end quote, From humble roots as the Midwest Mutual Life Insurance Company, founded in Fargo, North Dakota in 1930, it grew slowly until relatively recently when it seems to have found the keys to success. Today, the company is licensed in 48 states and the District of Columbia. It has more than 6,000 agents and serves over 225,000 policyholders. In May 2000, Clarica was sold to Sun Life Financial for 6.8 billion dollars. Of that, the Clarica brand was valued at 700 million dollars. How could a brand have such a huge relative value? According to former Clarica strategist Hubert Santong, Santong, yeah, I guess Santong, the brand was based in values deeply held By every clerica employee. The brand defined the clerica corporate character, how employees worked with one another, and ultimately how they interacted with the external world and built relationships with customers. Says Sant Ong if you want an authentic brand in financial services, the person that provides the service is the service. How you align that person to the values of the corporation is critical. The next subheading here, branding, customer candor. Openness is central to the progressive corporation brand and to its success in the marketplace, its CEO Glenn Renwick explains that the information asymmetries in the auto insurance industry have been an impediment to trust. Quote, the auto insurance field hasn't always been understood by consumers, end quote. Oh, no, not end quote. Sorry, the quote continues. You hold all the cards. Companies say, here's my price and here are the contract terms. But customers are in the dark as to the rationale for prices and even what other companies are charging. Progressive has built a brand based on openness, giving all the information a customer needs to make a decision. Another quote, if you give consumers only one data point, then you're only as good as that one data point. If you give them progressives rates and put it in a context of what other firms are charging, you create something new. First is a shopping methodology that didn't really exist in auto insurance, where, say, like buying a DVD, customers can window shop. Second, you build the relationship. You may lose that transaction, but candor. Opens the door to a relationship. End quote. Credit rating is another tricky issue in auto insurance. Quote, people are uneasy about it because they seem to be asking them, because we seem, sorry, because we seem to be asking them how much money they have, says Renwick. So, Progressive decided to be open, explaining to prospects exactly how their credit rating score affects price And how, by correcting errors or improving their credit rating, they can lower the cost of insurance. Customers are very appreciative. Says Renwick, quote, transparency has become part of our brand. End quote. Telephone companies have a reputation for opacity. Telephone bills are obscure. The company's bureaucracies are impenetrable when you have a problem. It is therefore shocking to see British Telecom, BT, as a world leader in the Transparency Revolution. The past 20 years have been exciting times for BT. In 1984, the company was formed from a government monopoly to a private sector was transformed sorry was transformed from a government monopoly to a private sector corporation despite the enormous shock to the corporate culture BT pulled off the transition with finesse for its first for its first 15 years in the private sector life was good dividends per share consistently rose peaking in fiscal year 1999 2000 Then, as with many other telecommunications companies in the world, profits plunged after a disastrous investment in third-generation mobile phone licenses. In a bid to restore profits and investor confidence, BT Management announced a host of initiatives built around a renewed top priority, customer satisfaction. Ben Verweyen, whoa, that's a... Wild last name Ben Ver Ver, Ver Vervayen Vervayen maybe Ben Vervayen I guess because it's a W V E R W A A Y E N I want to pronounce the W as a V because that to me seems like the right thing to do especially if it's from I don't know North Europe is that North Europe close to East Europe a- around those parts maybe Nordic I, I don't know Ben Vervayen the CEO of BT pledged quote to outperform competitors consistently and reduce the number of dissatisfied customers by 25% each year. End quote. Reducing dissatisfied customers by 25% each year is an enormous undertaking. Company research shows that customers expect continuous improvement in customer care and quality of service. In other words, With escalating expectations, BT must continually improve its product simply to maintain levels of satisfaction. To increase them is something else again. BT calls its plan, quote, customer candor. Step one is to deliver a superior product. BT's market research makes clear that superior service does not require the cheapest price customers want to know they are being dealt with honestly and considerately. Yeah, that makes sense. I think a customer for the most part, this is a side comment here. A customer for the for the most part knows that they get what they pay for, right? And on both sides, on both ends of the extreme, folks either want the best and are willing to pay more or I mean, I guess if it's uh like if they're hype beasts about it, they're willing to just shell out a lot of money for shit service even just to be part of an exclusive, ooh, uber exclusive group, right? On the opposite end, there are people who will pay, who want to pay little to nothing and, and will compromise on service. They will accept shit service because that might be all they want to pay or that might be all they can pay. Maybe that's all they can afford. But for the most part, if we're talking about, I suppose, a bell curve, right? Most people in the middle understand the concept of getting what you pay for. Continuing here, the company strives to keep customers informed when problems occur. It gives customers a clear commitment when a job starts and updates them until the job is completed satisfactorily. Satisfactorily? Satisfactorily. Customers can track repair work via SMS messaging on their cellular phones. If service is interrupted for an extended period and the customer doesn't have a cellular phone as backup, the the company provides one. The company pledges to do business in a way that has three points here. In a way that, first, maximizes the benefits of information and communications technology for individuals. Second, contributes to the communities in which it operates. And third, minimizes any adverse impact that it might have on the environment. The company sets out a statement of business practice, the way we work, which is which it makes widely available. It defines the business principles that apply worldwide to all employees, agents, contractors, and others when representing BT. The statement also sets out specific aspirations and commitments that apply in the company's relations with customers, employees, shareholders, partners, and suppliers, and in the communities in which it operates. In the area of the environment, for example, the company has scores of programs that demonstrate its commitment to eco-sensitivity, including details, such as prohibiting advertising on payphones that are located in areas of outstanding natural beauty national parks, open countryside, or world heritage sites. With respect to supplier relationships, the company pledges to ensure that all dealings with suppliers, from selection and consultation to recognition and payment, are conducted in accordance with the principles of fair and ethical trading. The company's supply chain initiative, quote, sourcing with human dignity, ...relies on standards based on the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights and International Labor Organization conventions. Quote, We intend to gain the support of our direct suppliers to promote these standards throughout our supply base. End quote. Recent research shows that UK residents have a large and growing belief that companies should behave in a socially responsible manner. The research also shows that the customers most interested in socially responsible behavior tend to be the most affluent. These customers are demanding and most likely to leave the company if dissatisfied. BT's conclusion is that Corporate Social Responsibility, CSR, contributes solidly To the bottom line. The next subheading here The New Risk of Global Brands. In a world of diverse local values, evidence is mounting that global brands may not always thrive. For the first time, there is considerable hand wringing among marketing executives about global branding. Anti corporate activist Naomi Klein argued in her bestseller no logo, that corporations like Nike, Shell, Walmart, and McDonald's have become metaphors for a global economic system gone awry. For adherence to her view, these brands have become mistrust marks and targets for attack. She predicts that outrage against these brands will change the way the companies present themselves. Some brand experts are working to determine whether the global qualities of their brand are positive or negative. Others are trying to measure the impact of corporate values on a global brand. According to Research International Observer, that's RIO, today's global consumers will adhere to their favorite brands and turn a blind eye to the company's political and ethical malpractices. Most consumers in the 40 countries they studied love U.S. brands, even though they may dislike U.S. policies. Hmm. Imagine that. Maybe made in the U.S. has, you know, has something behind it. I don't know. This shit was made, this shit was published in 2002. In 2023, it's slightly a different story. I mean, the quality is there. Sometimes the quality is not. <laughs> but even this study argues against homogeneous or homogenous homogeneous global brands or a, quote, one size fits all approach. Says RIO global director Malcolm Baker, quote, brands are becoming driven by a need for reconnection to local with local roots and a form of in your face authenticity that seeks to deny marketing construction. Consumers want to find the brand and not the other way around. Yeah, I get that. That's understandable. I feel like, uh, that this is also the reason why a lot of firms, a lot of corporations, you know, formal organizations will, we will go out of their way. We'll go out of their way to, um, establish subsidiaries, uh, establish, uh, uh, child companies, not child, what, what what's the term I'm looking for? Yeah, I guess it's a subsidiary. And then the, the subsidiary has a parent company, right? But you don't call them child companies. Offspring, offspring companies, just offshoot projects, I guess, offshoot ventures with a different name, with a different name even. In instances where, I guess, populations don't have the best sentiments toward US brands, U.S. brands will go out of their way to uh, form new corporations in these foreign lands with the appropriate name, the appropriate identity, the appropriate uh, marketing, marketing scheme for the sake of the dollar chasing the almighty dollar. Continuing, yet a low profile is not always the best policy. Monsanto, bruised and battered after its disastrous attempt, To introduce genetically modified foods to Europe is a telling example. In the United States, the company had happy customers and a strong brand. But when it attempted to extend this to Europe, it landed in a firestorm of protest. Europeans had huge sensitivities to genetically modified foods not shared by Americans. Monsanto had an active stakeholder web and didn't know it. So Monsanto was fumbling the bag and it didn't even know it had the fucking bag. That's funny. In explaining why the company was so out of touch with European public sentiment, its former president and CEO, Hendrik A. Verfaili. Verfayi Verfailly. Verfaili? Verfay, Verfay, Verfay. These last names, fam. V-E-R-F-A-I-L-L-I-E. Ver The CEO person said, quote, we don't understand that we didn't. We didn't understand that when it comes to a serious public concern, that the more you stand to make a profit in the marketplace, the less credibility you have in the marketplace of ideas. When we tried to explain the benefits, the science and the safety, we did not understand that our tone, our very approach was seen as arrogant. We were still in the trust me mode when the expectation was show me, end quote. Monsanto epitomized the wrong attitude to the brand for any company in an increasingly transparent society. Monsanto management felt that as a researcher leader, that as a research leader, Monsanto, I'm fucking that sentence up. Monsanto management felt that as a research leader, The company was in the best position to judge whether its products were safe. Knowing the subject to be controversial, the company decided to keep a low profile and attract as little scrutiny as possible. Fueling this point of view is the subject's aching complexity. There are no simple answers to the questions surrounding genetically modified organisms. Indeed, it's even hard to find arguments on the questions to ask. Nevertheless, the company should have recognized the enormous contribution it could make to the debate and participated fully. Monsanto is not the only company to suffer enormous losses and damage to its brand due to underestimating the public appetite for good values and responsible behavior. Unlike BP and Shell, ExxonMobil until recently chose to ignore growing public concern about the oil industry and the environment. Supporters praised its singular focus on shareholder value, arguing that it shows how so called responsible behavior of its competitors does not contribute to and possibly undermines shareholder value. Yet, a poll conducted by MORI Social Research for Greenpeace in November 2002 revealed that 1 million UK motorists say they're boycotting Exxon because of its stance on global warming. What about climate change? What about flip-flopping back to global cooling? Y'all remember that one? Anyways, another report released in May 2002 asserted that ExxonMobil's attitude toward climate change is fraught oh, now it's climate change, is fraught with unnecessary risks and missed opportunities that could threaten more than $100 billion in long-term shareholder value. The report entitled Risking Shareholder Value, question mark, ExxonMobil and Climate Change, an investigation of unnecessary risks and missed opportunities was commissioned, this report was commissioned by shareholder activist, Robert Monks, The Coalition for Environmentally Responsible Economies, that's C E R E S, and Campaign ExxonMobil. The report concludes, while quote, while ExxonMobil continues to gain respect in many quarters of it for its financials, I fucked that one up, hold on. Quote, while ExxonMobil continues to gain respect in many quarters for its financials. It also has marched into a potential minefield of reputational risk. Future shareholder losses, exposure to litigation, and policy costs on the issue of climate change, we find real and increasingly serious risks to shareholders having to share... What? Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, we find real... Um... Did I fuck that up? Nah we find real and increasingly serious risks to shareholders have arisen oh, okay yeah, yeah no. so we find ri- we find real we find real and increasingly serious risks to shareholders have arisen from the way Exxon Mobil has stood out from the crowd and let itself become the obvious chief Climate change villain, in quotes. The climate change villain. I don't know if it was the way that sentence was written or the way my brain was working, but something felt off about that sentence. Continuing. Commenting on the report's findings, Monks said. Quote, this report suggests that ExxonMobil has little to fear and much to gain from a significantly more constructive approach to climate change. This is a respectful request to ExxonMobil. You say you are right about climate change and yet the way in which you speak seems to create needless confrontation. You say that you have contingency plans in the event that you are proven wrong in 5 or 10 years and yet you do not share them with the world. We know of the efforts by comparable companies to reduce carbon emissions. From you, we have not only silence, but also rejection. You decline to engage in dialogue with other interested constituencies, that is to say, all the rest of us. This study is an effort to begin that dialogue. Exxon may be starting to shift its view, but the evidence is scanty. In November 2002, it contributed $100 million toward a 10-year, $225 million program at Stanford University for research into technologies that would help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. General Electric will contribute $50 million. ExxonMobil explained its contribution by saying New technologies for producing energy while reducing emissions of heat-trapping green gases were quote vital to meeting energy needs in the industrialized and developing world. end quote So far, many global companies that have suffered a values crisis that damaged their brands for having trouble fighting are having trouble finding back. So far, let me reread that. So far, Many global companies that have suffered a values crisis that damaged their brands are having trouble fighting back. McDonald's has stuck its toe into the globalization debate to defend itself. In April 2002, the company published its first corporate social responsibility status report using some guidelines from the Global Reporting Initiative. The initiative brings together a group of companies, governments, non-governmental organizations, unions, accountants and academics to develop standardized measurements of corporate social, environmental and financial performance. Pulling together its reports was a complex and costly exercise that took almost two years, but McDonald's says it was worth it since it hopes the report will temper its critics. However, so far, it has mainly drawn fire. (laughs) Welcome to the corporate war, fam. Paul Hawken, author of The Ecology of Commerce and Natural Capitalism and founder of the Salito based Natural Capital Institute, unleashed a withering critique of the McDonald's report, calling it the, quote, low watermark for the concept of sustainability and the promise of corporate social responsibility. It is a melange of homilies, generalities, and soft assurances that do not provide hard metrics of the company, its activities, or its impacts on society and the environment. Hawken, end quote there, end quote, Hawken cuts McDonald's, no slack. An honest report would detail the externalities borne by other people, places, and generations. The draining of aquifers, the contaminated waterways, the strip-mined soils, the dangerous abattoirs where migrant workers are employed, the inhumane, injury-prone, dead-end jobs preparing chicken carcasses for chicken nuggets, the global greenhouse methane gas emitted by the millions of, of hamburger cows in feedlots. Yo, they're still on this methane shit? Okay. Hawken, Hawken posted on the web a list of 47 issues that McDonald's sidestepped in its corporate self-portraits. Example, quote, one-fourth of the cows slaughtered are worn out to dairy cattle, animals most likely to be riddled with diseases, cancers, and antibiotic residues. McDonald's relies heavily on old dairy cows because they are lower in fat, cheaper, and allow them to say that all their meat is raised in the U.S. What the fuck kind of benefit is that? That because these cows are riddled with diseases and cancers and antibiotic residues that they're better? I I don't understand that. Anyways, continuing Hawkins, Hawkins posted on the web, a list of 47 issues that McDonald's sidestep in its corporate portrait. Oh, we already read that despite McDonald's I'm continuing now further down, despite McDonald's best efforts. And no matter how many reports it issues, Hawkins list of 47 issues won't go away. It sits there like a PR nightmare waiting to churn the stomach of its next visitor in represents a point of view shared by many critics to silence them. McDonald's will have to revamp its business model or show why its overall contribution to society is positive. Ignoring the issue accomplishes nothing. In the transparent world, corporations need a new ethos. The truth will out. The truth will out. What? The truth will out, even if the truth is never as extreme as the critics allege. Um, whatever. That sentence, the truth will out what? The truth will out, even if the truth is never as extreme as the critics allege. I don't understand that sentence. McDonald's can't brush aside criticism of the fast food industry by busily noting How many pounds of cardboard each franchise recycles every week in the eyes of extreme critics serving quote billions and billions of burgers is an egregious abuse of natural resources and the company has to engage in that debate the value of the internet is not to construct warring websites each lobbying assertions at the others it is a tool for dialogue if mcdonald's believes its use of resources and business practices are defensible, it should not shy away from the serious issues that accompany the fast food industry. The next subheading here, the dark side privacy. Transparency has a dark side. Not only are corporations becoming increasingly transparent to customers, customers are becoming increasingly transparent to corporations. As the net becomes the basis for commerce, work, entertainment, healthcare, learning, and much human discourse, each of us is leaving a trail of digital crumbs as we spend a growing portion of our day touching networks. The books, music, and stocks you buy online, groceries scanned at the supermarket or bought online, your child's research for a school project, the card reader at the parking lot, your car's conversations with a database via satellite, the online publications you read, the shirt you purchase in a department store with your store card, the prescription drugs you buy, and the hundreds of other network transactions in a typical day point to the problem. Computers can inexpensively link and cross-reference such databases to slice, dice, and recompile information about individuals in hundreds of different ways. In the past, we only worried about Big Brother governments assembling detailed dossiers about us, but now the threat also stems from individual corporations and their data. Little Brother (laughs) <laughs> little brother compared to big brother. That's, that's funny. I like that. That's funny. Go back and listen to, uh, what was it? Season seven episode. I think it's episode one, like the very intro of this book. You'll recognize the interconnectedness of these networks where corporate and government, they're not one and the same. They scratch each other's back and they do it out of is it self-interest? Self-preservation? So they've got resource. They each have resources that they need from one another. I've seen it happen. I've seen it work. I've seen the cooperation. I've seen the backstabbery. I've seen the fuckery. The cloak and dagger. The skullduggery. I mean, it's fun to an extent. And there's money to be made there. And then, you know, there's the dark side. fucking <laughs> The dark side. Intense comp- I'm continuing. Intense competition is making marketing departments look for any edge they can get. Companies can't afford to squander marketing dollars on people who have no intention of ever buying their product. That means companies want to know more and more about what makes each of us tick, our motivations, behavior, attitudes, and buying habits. The good news is that companies can give us highly customized services based on this intimate knowledge and build trusting relationships. The bad news is that these pro- is that as these profiles are compiled, the net result is the potential for the destruction of everything we've come to know as privacy. To further complicate the issue, each of us has a different Often inconsistent sense of what constitutes privacy and permissible encroachments, while some encroachments are uh, invasions of privacy. I mean, like we'll we'll allow invasions to an extent, but only if it benefits us somehow, or or we don't uh, completely compromise our vulnerabilities for the sake of you know this this privacy that a corporation or. Some type of organization, our doctor even wants to make use of because uh, our vulnerabilities aren't out there. Like the doctor is, you know, there to help, there to practice medicine, uh, allegedly, right? There to make us be better, to to facilitate healthcare to us. And the hope is that their invasion of privacy is kept professional only, right? But, well, you know, you know the game, To further complicate the issue, where did it go? While some demand the right to remain anonymous, others clamor, for example, to exchange every detail of their online behavior for free gift certificates or air miles. Of course, that's their choice. Privacy is all about the freedom to choice. To choose. Man, I really botched that last sentence up. Of course, that's their choice. And privacy is all about the freedom to choose. In January 2003, the California Department of Motor Vehicles, that's DMV, revoked all state insurance companies' electronic access to confidential driver's license and vehicle registration information because the government said the company had failed to adhere to state laws and regulations concerning access to these records. Allstate, the eighth largest car manufacturer in California, had and other companies, other insurance companies have online access to DMV records to help investigate insurance claims and to set rates on the basis of a person's driving record. The department stated the reason it revoked Allstate's online access to data was because the company engaged in continuous and system-wide violations of the security provisions governing the data. A DMV audit at seven of Allstate's California claims offices found that company employees routinely violated the confidentiality requirements of the company's contract with the government. In one case, an Allstate employee released a confidential home address that enabled a road rage driver to send a written threat to another driver just a side note yo know, this shit happens every day this shit happens every day and if it's not an all state agent it's an executive and if it's not an executive it's a fucking hit team it's a hit squad it's a it's a, it's a wet work uh it, it's yeah it, it's a wet work group Th- this shit happens all the time there's gangs inside of gangs there are alliances inside of uh inside of What's the term I'm looking for? There's, I mean, corporate. If if there's anything, I guess, if if there is a value to being in a corporate, to being a corporate cowboy, it's learning how to and when to leverage access to information, right? But then, but then, you got the flip side. You got these other motherfuckers who are just fucking up the bag. We're getting access revoked for everybody. While they themselves violate the regulations that govern the access to this data. You have that shit happening inside of fucking police departments. You have that happening inside of insurance companies. Obviously, Uh, institutions that have access to this private information, to this intimate information, they are always at risk of becoming corrupt and for the wrong reasons too like there there's good reasons to move corruptly there's good reason to move within the shadows and these companies don't fucking have it they don't they have no fucking reason these these organizations like the police I can't tell you how many times never mind i'm not i will just shut my fucking mouth but <laughs> The threatened driver, the driver who was threatened, the threatened driver complained to the DMV, which investigated. While it could not identify the person who leaked the address, the DMV did find 131 other violations of confidentiality rules, including the staff's making up fake car claim numbers to get into friends' or family members' DMV records. The violations were so egregious here. Without an ironclad agreement in our hands that it wouldn't happen again, we had to pull the plug, DMV director Stephen Gourley told a local newspaper. Oh, how atrocious. How fucking shameful. Fucking bullshit. Continuing, Allstate not only violated privacy rules, but also resisted the DMV's attempts to investigate and fix the problem. There was such a lax culture at Allstate that they didn't even know it was regulated, Gourley said. Sometimes they wouldn't let us in to investigate, and in other cases they threw us out. Allstate spokesperson Mike Trevino called the actions of an undisclosed number of Allstate claims employees a, quote, breach of internal policy that Allstate regrets. Hmm. Let me reread that because I feel like I had a fucking stroke. Allstate spokesperson, Mike Trevino, called the actions by an undisclosed number of Allstate claims employees a breach of internal policy that Allstate, quote, regrets. Now, I read that right. It's just that my brain was fucking retarding. <laughs> he added that Allstate had taken, quote, decisive action to make sure such breaches don't occur, but couldn't immediately say what those actions were. Hmm. Makes you wonder. Almost always, continuing, almost always corporate breaches of customer privacy have a well-meaning intention, but the Allstate incident shows how companies can be breathtakingly cavalier about privacy concerns. Companies need to understand the principles that must be respected in good corporate privacy policies. There is consent. People must agree to having information about them compiled. Limiting the collection. The collection of such information must be limited to what is needed. There is identifying purpose. The purposes for which personal information is collected must be made clear. There is limiting use, disclosure, and retention. unless authorized by the individual information must not be used for purposes other than those for which it was collected and the information must be kept on file only as long as necessary it would be a big mistake for companies to conclude that corporate transparency should be applied to individuals that customers should get used to being naked customers will want to be clothed for the foreseeable future, and firms need to respect their privacy. If corporate transparency is critical for trust, then so is individual privacy. When it comes to customers, privacy is good business. Well, oh no, that last sentence, it it, it, it rings, it smacks, they say, it shit smacks of um, hypocrisy. <laughs> That concludes chapter six of The Naked Corporation, How the Age of Transparency Will Revolutionize Business. I was your host for this chapter, Alex, yours truly. And I thank you for joining me. Stay tuned as we continue reading The Naked Corporation, How the Age of Transparency Will Revolutionize Business. Thank you very much. Have yourself a fine day.